creativity and the imagination. I'm also primarily a miniature painter, so I love being able to use my models for something uh, with application. Uh, my name is Allison Shireman, and I am a Gamerati, for the Gamer. Crap, I did it wrong! <laughs> Gamerati.com. It's good to be a gamer. This is the Vorpal Network. Welcome to Dice Monkey Radio, episode 5. I'm your host, Mark Meredith, and joining me tonight is the Pater Familius, my dad, Scott Meredith. Hi, how are you? Good. So, my dad played D&D back in the back in the old, old school days, back when it was zero edition. And, uh, so you've had a lot, you, you had a lot of experience, but then you, you haven't played since, since the eighties, right? Yeah. It's been probably 80, 85 or something was the last time I played. Okay. And then we had played, it wasn't this year. It was two years ago. Um, two Christmases ago. Um, we had, I'd sat down and had, you and mom and my brother and his wife all all sat down and played um fourth edition and i oh and and my wife bridget um mm-hmm. we all sat yep. down and played a game of fourth edition and um how did you like that seeing it how was, things it was good it was uh fun you know kind of going back into that um when i played it was one of those things where you know i was the dungeon master most of the time Mm. And uh, didn't get to play a lot. Um, got to play in a tournament. We had a, a local tournament. Um, but I, I enjoyed the dungeon mastering end of it, creating mm. the worlds. Yeah. And then when I made the character for you, because um, I basically just did, I made characters for everybody so we didn't have to spend time doing that. Um, you got to play your your character from back in the day. I made him up for you and everything. Yeah, Xanthes, the magic user. Yeah. And uh, we interpreted that this time as a, uh, I think, a dragon, a dragon sorcerer, dragon magic sorcerer. So it was, uh, it was fun to see. It was actually really fun to see that um, you and mom really went for the very old school approach of not, not rolling the dice, instead asking questions. Uh, most modern players, they, they automatically just, okay, well, I'm going to roll for that to see if I'm able to detect things. Whereas you guys were actually asking questions and trying to figure out the puzzles behind, behind mm-hmm. everything rather than just, rather than just roll, rolling for it. You were actually, um, thinking critically. Yeah. Yeah. We did a lot of, um, we did a lot of storytelling when we were doing it. Um, I had, a a group of guys, we, we didn't get to get together very often, we probably only played, oh, maybe five times a year, a um, little bit more in the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were really good storytellers and wanted the whole thing to be a good story. It wasn't just, uh, you know, what we, I don't know if you still call them that, but we used to call them Monty Hall Dungeons. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah they, they weren't real interested in that kind of thing. They wanted an adventure. Yeah. The Monty Hall um, the fourth edition has been criticized for being more that because it doesn't have any rules for role playing at all. All the rules in the book are all about going in and killing things and taking their stuff, mm-hmm. um, which you know I've talked about on the blog quite a bit about how 
there's there's not rules for it because there shouldn't be rules for role playing. You should just role play. So, mm-hmm. um, well, let's go ahead and move into the news, and um, we'll go ahead and uh, start that up. Okay, first up, there's been a lot of controversy on Twitter over um, the new this new post that's been put up on Wizards by Mike Merles about the save versus die. Um, basically, the whether or not it should be put back into D and D. You know, you're getting a single roll, and if failing that, you die. Um, which is it's existed in previous editions, um, but not anytime recently. Did did you experience save versus die very much, or was that not a part of your games? Um, it was the part of our games. Uh, as as I recall, um, it had been brought up as an alternative in Dragon Magazine, and it it didn't seem to be really popular. Um, there was a few things that uh, you know you might try from time to time with critical hits or something like that, uh, but. It just wasn't very popular. People wanted to, uh, if if I got forty hit points, I want to have every one of those available to me. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, one of the criticisms I, criticisms I saw was that save versus death works awesome in novels. It doesn't work so well when you're playing because you can afford when you're writing a book to just bump off a character with mm-hmm. you know just to show how powerful the monster is, mm-hmm. but you don't want to do that when you have people who have spent time creating these characters and, um, you know, having them go through, you know, multiple experiences and everything to yeah. try to try to do it, you know, to, to get through the adventure. Um, you don't want to sort of just cut them off like that. Uh, so not to, not that there shouldn't be danger to the game, mm-hmm. but um, they should, if they're going to die, it should be because they've gotten, Worn down and then taken out by something, not just up. Oh, you 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 rolled badly on one roll and you're you're done. Yeah, yeah. Um, another thing is back on March fourth, which is only a few days back from uh, when we're recording this, uh, was the fourth anniversary of Gary Gygax's death. He was one of the two founders of D and D. Him along with Dave Arneson. Um. And you were playing back in Gary Gygax's versions of D and D. Yeah the uh, the first version of D and D I played was actually D and D. It wasn't a D and D. Mm-hmm. It was uh, the old white box and uh, the al- almost uh, you know copied on a copy machine sort of uh, books. Mm-hmm. Um, they were you know folded over and uh, uh, stapled down the middle. And then finally, um, one of them came out, and it actually had a, a spiral bound, a plastic spiral bound, and we thought that was pretty cool because now they would actually lay out flat. Mm-hmm. So yeah, anytime uh, you know, Gary Gygax would say something, everybody listened. If there'd be an article about him uh, or an article by him, that was something really cool because he didn't. Um, he didn't do a lot of, of articles and things. You just knew that this was the guy who'd gotten things started. Mm-hmm. Now, um, you, did, you, did you also play Chainmail back in the day as well? I uh, had Chainmail. Um, the Chainmail was, you know, largely for the, you know, 
the big epic battles. Mm. And we didn't do a lot of that. We used little bits and pieces just if we had something where we had a battle we needed to work out. Mm-hmm. But we didn't do a lot with it. Well, now, what happened with all those books that you had? Uh, I wish I still had them. Um, it, it got to a point where I thought, you know, I really don't think I'm going to uh, play much anymore. I had uh, all of the old white box ones, including all the supplements. I had um, the AD&D um, books that had come out, you know, Monster Manual and, and Player's Handbook and Dungeon Master's Guide and Monster Manual to all those. And then had uh, Dragon Magazines from, I think, about number, it seems like it was number 20 or something like that, mm-hmm. up through, it seems like I'd gotten into the hundreds, but I'm not sure yet. Mm-hmm. And um, there was an auction at a, there was a local uh, game fair that they had. And I thought, well, you know, maybe I'll be able to get a little bit of money out of this. And uh, so they had an auction there and it was just, you know, whatever people bid for them. Well, everybody had most of that stuff. So it, uh, it didn't go for much. I think I got 20 or 30 bucks out of them. Hmm. And now you'd be getting, getting far more than that. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, they're setting up a, they've set up a Gary Gax Memorial Fund um, that they've been doing a lot of different things to raise money for, including uh, Wizards is going to be uh, re-releasing the first edition AD&D books um, with new covers. But other than that, the te- all the text inside is identical. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're actually just scanning it. They aren't even retw- retyping it or anything mm-hmm. um, to make sure that it's identical to um, the previous edition. There aren't you know, some typos that they've made along the way. But uh, all that's going to the Gary Gygax Memorial Fund, which is actually going to be be used to raise money to build a statue of Gary mm-hmm. at Lake Geneva, um, which mm-hmm. is actually not too far away from here. Um, I'm about 45 minutes away from Lake Geneva, so I'm thinking at some point I'm going to need to make the, uh, make the trek up make there the to uh, make the pilgrimage to see where D&D started. Um, I just haven't gotten around to it yet, so... Um, so yeah, that's, um, they're planning on doing, setting that up, um, build, building that soon, hopefully. And, uh, I look forward to seeing how that goes. So, uh, we have one last piece of news. I have set up a new blog. I'm calling it F form and a lot of people have been talking about it and enjoying it. So I've been almost exclusively writing about that over on dice monkey and figured it was about time to sort of set a, set aside a blog where you can get all of all of the details and fan resources in one place. Um, I've got some plot point tokens that you can print out. I've got some of the villain data files, um, information about the sliding timeline of the Marvel Universe, um, things like that. Um, detailed explanations about elements of the um, of the character data sheets, things like that. So, um, I've got that set up. I'm going to be adding more and more to it. It's not going to be increasing my blog load because whenever I feel like about writing about the Marvel RPG rather than just put it up on Dice Monkey, I'm going to be cross-posting it on both. So um, I'm going to be running a game of that on the 17th um, at the little game store. And then I'm hoping once I move back to Spokane to be running a a campaign of the Marvel RPG. So um, everybody can keep an eye out for that and 
With that, let's go ahead and move on uh, to hear a word from our sponsor, and then we'll come back and we're going to talk about early D&D. For entire generations of people now, gaming is as much a part of the fabric of their reality as television, films, books, music, and any other form of entertainment medium. Continue is a magazine for the gaming community, the global gaming community. Not just video and computer games, but board games, card games, role-playing games, ultimate reality games, and anything that falls into the category of humans engaging to have fun. A celebration of gaming. Everything we love about this mad entertainment sector. Continue Magazine at www.continuemag.com. Welcome back. So we're going to go ahead and talk about old, old, old school D&D and... Um, and what it was like compared to current D&D, things like that. Um, I was actually introduced to D&D because of all the Dragonlance books that we had in our library. We have a we had a room in our house that was, um, what was that for, formerly? It was like a... Where well, it was originally the, the uh, coal room. Yeah. Uh, there was a coal chute outside, and then it was a wood room. Mm-hmm. And we'll clean that out and um, have, a, have a library in there now. And it's just packed full of... Um, Books, a lot of textbooks from back when you were a teacher, and um, and then there was a big, huge shelf that was just packed full of the Dragonlance books. Um, and I remember being about, I think probably about eleven or so, and um, and I'd been asking if I could read them because there's all the pictures of dragons on the cover and things like that. And uh, you let me read the the original trilogy, followed by the. Uh, the second trilogy, the, the legends, um, mm-hmm. with Caramon and Raceland. Um, and so you, and you, you were continuing to collect those for quite a while. Yeah. We kept on up on them for quite a while until it just got to where there were so many of them coming out and there were different authors and everything that, uh, you just couldn't keep up with them. Yeah. And as, as corny and cheesy as they are, like looking back on them now, they were a fantastic introduction to how D&D played. And then I remember reading in the back of the books, it was Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman talking about how the books were basically the adventures of their their gaming group. And mm-hmm. that idea that you could have the same adventures that that these people have was a really, really just crazy idea for me. Um, I think my first the first time it, uh, role-playing was brought up, was um, I was in a swim class at the YMCA, and one of my one of my friends was talking about how he had a game where you could play different characters in the Star Wars universe, and I was amazed. And I remember running back to you and telling you all about it, and you were like, "Oh, I know all about that." <laughs> yeah. And uh, so we ended up. Um, I I think I had asked you if I could play, and you were like, "Oh, no, you're not quite old enough yet." I think I was probably about seven. No, it's probably yeah. about eight or nine, I think. But, um, and then it wasn't till, um, I was about 14 that, um, one of my friends in, a in theater class ended up, um, showing me the Star Wars role-playing game and I got into it. But then it sort of like, it sort of began clicking like, wait, this is, this game is, is what I've been reading about in the back of the Dragonlance books. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. When, uh, when you were young, both you and your brother, we knew that if we let you get into things too soon, um, that would be the only thing you did. 
<laughs> and so we wanted you to wait a while till you were a little better able to handle it and um, wouldn't go too completely crazy about it. And, and now we have. Both your mom and I had <laughs> played before we were married. Um, mm. We both played uh, D&D and uh, both read a lot of fantasy and science fiction, still do. Mm. And and now Andrew is a game designer, and I and I write and talk about role playing games so much. It might be a, it might as well be a full time job. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> didn't exactly succeed. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, how did you end up getting involved in D anD D? Like, what was your initial introduction to it? Well, I had a friend in uh, in college, and um, we were good buddies. Um, shortly after, uh, he left this, this would have been, we went to a, a two year school together mm-hmm. and, um, shortly after he left, uh, he got introduced to D and D and he was telling me about it and he was trying to describe what this was. And it, it, it was kind of hard to understand what it was at the time because there wasn't really anything like it. And he said, I think this is something you'd really like. And the problem was trying to find it anywhere. And the places you would actually go to find it, because there weren't a lot of game stores and things like that, was Hallmark Cards carried it. Hmm. They have a game section. And sometimes you could find some of the stuff there. And so I bought the original box and then gradually found the different pieces of it. He was living someplace else, and so... um, you know, we would talk a little bit and we got together once and, you know, he kind of took me through it and I got the idea of it. And then we were pretty much, you know, on our own, uh, doing that. Um, we, when we talked, you know, years later, we said it was really good that we did not find out about this in college because we would not have done well. (laughs) Yeah. Now I've, I've heard really terrible things about the dice back in the day. They would they would crumble apart. Was that a um, an issue? We didn't have any problems with those. Um, they they were not didn't have as crisp an edge mm-hmm. as uh, as the later ones did. Um, finding dice uh, could be difficult. Uh, there were not a lot of places to find them, and finding uh, critters and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, Every time I would go by a, um, well, Toys R Us later on, but there was a toy store before that. I can't remember the name of it. It was up um, on the other side of town. And sometimes you could find uh, little knights on horses and things like that. Or you might be able to find something that you could, you know, pretend was an ogre. Mm. Um, and then uh, later we would use some of the, the things that the kids, you and your brother, as you were growing up, mm-hmm. always had your guys. Yeah. Uh, guys for, <laughs> guys are basically dolls. Mm-hmm. Just, uh, you know, dolls for boys. It was things like, you know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and yeah. uh, Thor and the Hulk and things like that. And they yeah, you had, had this big, huge, this big, huge Thor figure that was about <laughs> the same size as a Ken doll, but it wasn't, it wasn't mobile at all. It was just a solid piece of plastic. I remember yeah. Yeah, had that and had a Captain American. You know, those would be, you know, giants and ogres and things yeah. like that. But they were hard to find. Mm-hmm. 
So you'd go in and you'd buy whatever was in stock, and then for the rest of the stuff, you'd get army men and say, okay, this army man is an orc. Mm-hmm. Well, I remember you had there was a large metal box mm-hmm. that had all the different figures inside, and I remember when when we were told we could open that up and play with them, it was a it was a huge thing, mm-hmm. and I remember that it um, there was a couple of the monsters from the monster manual that are actually based off of just monsters grabbed from this this tube of monsters, mm-hmm. um, the bugbear and the rust monster, mm-hmm. and a couple others, and I remember specifically playing with your figure that. Gary Gygax based the Russ monster on. Mm. Um, and because I've seen the picture online that people have put up and I, I remember playing with that. Mm. And then I remember playing with those knights until, until we lost most of them or got them stepped on and things like that. So I don't yeah. think you have those anymore, but <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know that they ever got thrown away, but um, I think some of them, you know, found their way into, you guys' pockets and apartments and things like that, and yeah. disappeared from there. Yeah. So you didn't have much much in the way of being able to do the to get dice or miniatures. Um, how about how did you guys? I know fourth edition very heavily relies on maps. Did you guys have like whiteboards? Did you not use maps at all? Just you know, well, this was mind? this was long before the day of whiteboards. <laughs> oh yeah, that's true. Uh, whiteboards would have been nice. Uh, what, what you did is some places, uh, you'd get a, you know, four by eight sheet and you'd, um, you know, paint it with chalkboard paint. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't have that much room to work with. Mm-hmm. And so there were a lot of things that were periodically available where you could get, um, a, a big old hex sheet that would fold up and, um, it was largely blank. And you could just kind of fill things in. And so we would do some things where uh, we'd take one of those and kind of fill in, you know, the cities and everything else. Or there, were, there was um, uh, there was Greyhawk and I don't remember the other one. but there Blackmore? Was Blackmore, yeah. Mm-hmm. And we'd have those. We'd kind of fit all those together. And then you take some of the modules that were available, like the uh, uh, the giant modules, the the I'm trying to think what they were, the frost giant, and you know ones like that that were kind of classic ones. And we would say, okay, that one's here, and this one's over there. And I would know what they were, and I'd have some kind of markings on the map. And uh, as the players were wandering through, wherever they would end up. That was the one we do, and I I bought you know pretty much any modules that were available, and there weren't a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, other than that, um, had a, a notebook with regular graph paper, and uh, had dungeons with multiple layers, and some of them were quite extensive. And as they go through, they would have to map the dungeon so they could figure out how to get back out. Mm-hmm. D and D was a lot more deadly back then. Um, did you did you have a lot of of player deaths, or um, because you guys were more focused on the story, did you guys we, avoid general player death? You would have player deaths at the low levels, you know, first mm-hmm. and second level. Um, once players got to you know fourth or fifth level, um, you know, it, it took a while to move on. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't do a lot of Monty Hall dungeons and things like that, so. 
they would, you know, get points for treasures and monsters, but they'd also get points for other things like, you know, kind of how well they played and bonus points and things like that. Mm-hmm. And there weren't a whole lot of deaths after that because this was a, a troop and, you know, they, they'd been together. And, um, well, one of the things that uh, this group did there was uh, a particular magic user in the group. That's what they were called back then. And there was a way that you could research spells. So if you had a spell that wasn't in the book that you wanted to create, you could create it. And, you know, you'd describe the complexity and uh, the dungeon master would decide, uh, you know, what level spell that was and then what it would take to develop that. Well, there was a particular town that they were working out of. Um, they'd move from there out into the dungeons and come back. Well, they wanted to be not just these wandering travelers, but they wanted to really, this was their city. And so he wanted to develop a spell that was for fireworks, basically a Gandalf-type fireworks display, mm-hmm. so that when they came back, they could put on this um, this big show for the town and and it would be fun. So, so he was going through and developing everything he'd need for the spell and what it was going to do and everything. And after they'd come back after a successful, um, successful quest, they'd come back and uh, have a huge fireworks show for the town. And so that was some of the, uh, the role-playing that they did. It was a lot of, you know, what they're going to do back in town. And I, I think a couple of them even had a business back in town that they had to then work on when they came back. Yeah. Hmm. That's really cool. Yeah, the uh I like I I keep around a lot of my older D&D books even if not necessarily for um for using them to play, but for example, the the Dungeon Master's Guide to for 3rd edition uh features rules for owning a tavern and things like that. Mm-hmm. That um 4th edition just generally overlooks because they don't see it as as an important aspect of the game. So it's nice to have those that you can, you know, look back on and if you want to incorporate things like that into the game you can. Yeah, a lot of those things um back in the day originally were in Dragon Magazine. Mm-hmm. Um you'd have there was a lot of I mean there was a lot of, you know, crummy articles, but there was a lot of really good articles that would take just one particular topic on, you know, how to do this sort of thing. Or, um, and it was things like, you know, running a tavern or something like that. It might be just a couple pages, but it was enough that if you needed it, you knew where it was and you could go grab it. Use it. Mm-hmm. Now you used, there was a dungeon that you described to me in the past. Um, that was a a tesseract. That was a basically like a yeah infinite a, Rubik's cube type thing. Well, what a tesseract is is it's a four dimensional cube. So you've got you know two dimension. You got a square. You put third dimension. You've got a cube. Well, if you go one more dimension, you've got a four dimensional cube. Mm-hmm. And um, I've gone out since then online, and there's a couple of articles out there about, you know, test racks and um, using them in gaming. What we did, it, it seems like there had been a Dragon magazine or something that had referred to this in passing. And then I think it was in, 
uh, wrinkle in time or something like that, they were talking about the Tesseract. And so I was trying to figure out how would you envision that and actually use that in a dungeon Mm -hmm. and spent a lot of time getting it ready. Um, It was shortly before we kind of quit playing and so didn't get to play in it near as often as we wanted. But I put together a thing where um, if, if you kind of take a cube and then put cubes around it and then open the whole thing up flat so it's mm-hmm. kind of like a map so you can tell where you're going. And the whole idea in this, and it was, it was one of those adventures where you kind of pushed the players into it because you wanted them to go to a certain place, so you kind of made it so they had to go there. Mm-hmm. And the way I did that was um, somebody had gone into the Tesseract and they had not closed it, and so it was open into another dimension and all the magic was seeping out of the world. Hmm. And so spells would misfire. So in order for the magic users to be able to use their spells, they were going to have to go and close this door. Because what would happen is maybe you'd shoot a fireball and the fireball would be tearing along and all of a sudden it would disappear. But then periodically maybe a magic missile or a fireball would just kind of appear out of nowhere. And it was because the the magic was leaking and everything was spelled up. Yeah. So in this Tesseract, when you would walk into a room, whatever direction your feet were pointed was down for you. So as you would walk through a portal, as you'd pull your head through, you would be standing on the floor. Well, if somebody had come in from the side, they're standing on the side of the wall. Or if somebody were to come in up above, they were standing uh, on the ceiling. <clears throat> so it made some for some interesting battles. And um, you had some things kind of like, uh, <clears throat> what, what was it? Uh, the Gene Kelly movie where he dances on the ceiling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it was that sort of thing. And so things are every which direction. And you would have things where maybe you've, you've killed the creature in the room. And his treasure is sitting in a box, but it's on the ceiling. Well, you can't just, you know, grab it and pull it down. How are you going to get that? Because reaching up and grabbing it, it's going to keep trying to go back to the ceiling because that's his gravity. So you'd have to go through a door and come through a different way. And all of these things were interlaced to where you could go all through this tesseract. And you had all this mapped out? Yeah, had a um, you know how you can take a cube and, and unfold it. Yeah, so you've got the all the six <laughs> sides sort of laid out. Right, had all of that and had I think there were what twenty seven cubes like that, <laughs> and they kind of folded together and you could unfold it and see where you were and stuff. So oh wow. <laughs> It got a little nuts trying to wrap your head around it. Yeah. Well, it's fourth dimensional space. So yeah. that'd be a really, really interesting dungeon to see. Yeah. And of course, all of that went out with, uh, with the stuff when I auctioned it. Yeah. So I got nothing left. Yeah. And do you have any other interesting stories from, from early edition D and D? One of the things that if I understand correctly is not a big part anymore that was a, a big thing back then was uh, alignment. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had your different alignments that you could choose. And 
a lot of people didn't use it because they said, oh, this is kind of stupid. It's just one more thing. But um, the thing that the alignment did is the players needed to determine why did they do the things that they did? Mm-hmm. They couldn't just randomly, oh, I'm going to go up and I'm going to kill the guy. It says, well, you're a paladin. Paladins don't do that kind of thing. Um, and they, they were lawful good. They followed the law, and they, uh, following the law was they basically did things for a reason. You didn't do things randomly. It wasn't chaotic. It wasn't uh, um, anarchy. Um, and they were good. Mm-hmm. And so it didn't mean that a paladin couldn't kill somebody, but he needed a reason. Um, you also had uh, different types of neutral. Um, with neutral, they weren't hung up on law, but they weren't into chaos. Um, and they were a true neutral was neither good nor bad. It was kind of the um, you know the Buddhist monk that um, you know didn't want to go too far one way or the other way. And it really added a dimension to the the role playing, mm-hmm. and the way that uh, that would be enforced is let's say somebody was lawful good, um, they might do something that was evil, and that would be something that would you know really gall them. It would you know prick their conscience. Um, if they started to do that very much, then you would penalize them on experience points because they're not acting according to character. Now, there was an option where they could change. You know, they could say, well, you know, I'm tending towards this. But when that happened, it, you know, causes kind of a a crisis of conscience. And so um, they may actually drop back a level or two because of that as they're trying to, you know, find themselves. Um, But what it did is it uh, made people think about what they're doing and why they're doing it. Um, instead of just, well, I'm going to kill this because I feel like killing it, mm-hmm. and uh, tomorrow I'm going to, you know, protect the the pussy cat. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that really helped with the uh, with the role playing, made it interesting. Um, you know, who would or would not associate with uh, with somebody. Um, sometimes you'd get the, uh, you know, chaotic thief. And I hated it when somebody was a chaotic thief. The chaotic neutral? What's that? The chaotic neutral? Um, almost any case. Yeah, probably chaotic neutral. Because I've heard a lot of people complain about the chaotic neutral because the per- usually the person thought that it just meant I can do whatever I want. I'm going to go burn down this orphanage because I'm chaotic neutral. I do whatever I want, which is not, yeah. the, you know, you burn down an orphanage, you're evil. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The chaotic um, thief... Um, the other players were always cautious when he was around because he may have uh, the ability to pick a lock or something like that. But what he might do is he would think, wouldn't it be cool if I could pick the pocket of this, um, uh, you know, 10th level warrior that we come across? And then, of course, if he gets caught, then everybody in the in the party is He's in trouble. It's on the hook for the thing. Yeah. And so they'd see him go off. They'd say, no, 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 somebody stop him. And they'd, you know, try and tackle him or something. And um, it was a whole lot of fun for the thief, but it uh, (laughs) (laughs) made for interesting uh, quests. Yeah. (laughs) Um, 
there was there was actually in my group in Virginia, one of my players was playing a a pair of characters, a dwarf brother and sister who were a paladin and a cleric. And there was one point at which they they decided they were going to burst into this room because they was there was some hobgoblin slavers that they were they were tracking. They burst into this room and they saw that it was a kitchen and there was two humans staying there. And I I made sure to mention they looked very very terrified and they were in dirty rags and everything. And he was like, oh, I'm going to charge in and I'm going to kill him. I said, oh, okay. And he, his dwarf, his dwarves ran forward and charged in and took down the two people. And everybody was like, what are you doing? And he said, what's the matter? And they said, these are hobgoblin slavers. And we just walked into a, a, a pair of humans in a kitchen. <laughs> they said, you just killed the slaves. <laughs> And if this was if it was an earlier edition of of D and D, um, I'd have probably have forced him to you know change his alignment based on yeah based on that. But um, with either change fourth, alignment or drop back a level or something. Exactly yeah. with with fourth edition, um, they they changed the way that the paladin and cleric work. Where basically once your god imbues you with power, they don't just take it away. Um, where I know with with third edition, if your paladin stopped acting paladiny, then they would lose all their paladin powers, which would make them basically a completely ineffective character. Because yeah, they'd sure be still be able to fight, but mm-hmm. they wouldn't be as good a fighter as a fighter. Um, yeah, they so just regular fighter. Exactly. So, um, so yeah, it was actually it was really amusing to see that and um, and know that basically he would be he he had been completely hosed. If it mm-hmm. was a previous edition, so I just let him reset his action <laughs> because mm-hmm. he just wasn't paying attention at all. He was just yeah. he saw people and decided to go kill him. So yeah, and that's something that, if I'm understanding correctly, how things are are played a little bit more today. Um, there was a lot more trying to figure things out. It wasn't you know blasting through the dungeons and stuff. I mean, there were there were some who did that. Mm. But uh, a lot of um, asking questions and so forth, uh, you know, may, maybe it had to do with uh, that was the time of uh, like Zork and so forth, mm-hmm. where, you know, I look to the right, what do I see? I look to the left, what do I see? You might be eaten by a group, you know, those sorts of things where um, you were kind of used to doing those things of, of not charging right in with uh, sword drawn. But uh, finding out what was going on, trying to solve the riddle, and so forth. Yeah, when I, when I was playing with um, with the family, uh, you guys came upon a couple of pillars that that seemed to be wrapped in wrapped in lightning. Um, and rather than just go walking between the two pillars, you guys stopped and began throwing things through the um, between the pillars and trying to see, you know, if it might. Um, you know, blast whatever Zaps it was. Or something, yeah. yeah, exactly. And uh, I made sure that it was very much a a puzzle that couldn't be solved just by hitting things. Mm-hmm. That it was you guys had to sort of figure it out. And I think, um, I think mom was playing a wizard or something, and she ended up like wrapping the pillar in ice to help yeah. um, seize it up and things like that. And it was it was really really fun to watch you guys sort of sort of pick your way through and sort of establish, okay, what can we do here? How should we do this and everything like that? Um, and I think that's definitely something that needs to be, needs to be kept in D and D, um, making sure that the players are 
critically thinking rather mm-hmm. than just, you know, well, I'll just roll my thievery check to see if I can disable right. this trap, you know? Right. Yeah, we tended to um, keep things in our pockets as we were going through dungeons. We'd find things that worked like, you know, a ball of twine and mm. uh, different things like that. So you'd have them and uh, you could use them for, you know, setting traps or um, maybe guarding against those kobolds you were talking about. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, My group actually began to experience a little bit of, of old schoolness um, about a month ago when they were running through a dungeon and a couple of the guys decided to charge forward through an intersection and toppled right into a pit trap. Mm-hmm. Cause I didn't have them roll for it because they were not paying attention. They just mm-hmm. fell right into a pit trap. And from then on, anytime they've gotten to an intersection of any kind, they've been pulling out their 10 foot poles and poking at the ground. Let's see. Um, I'm not really, normally we talk at this point about, what's going on in each other's campaigns and stuff, but you don't have a campaign and campaign. Yeah. And I've, um, the, the stuff that I've been doing in the last few weeks has been, uh, has been under, um, non-disclosure. So, um, I don't really have much that I can talk about. Um, I've got the, the Marvel RPG that I'm going to be running on the 17th, um, at the game store, uh, I'm not going to be running the the breakout event, which um, I believe we talked about on the on the episode with Cam Banks. That's all the villains breaking out of prison. I'm going to be sort of making out my own scenario that involves um, two supervillain teams showing up to rob a bank at the exact same time, <laughs> and the and basically the heroes are arriving on the scene just as the cars are being picked up and start flying at each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it'll add some, it'd be a nice layer of chaos. Um, I've got a lot of, um, I've begun doing a lot of like 3d terrain and things like that for the game. Um, even though the, the Marvel RPG doesn't require minis or even have rules for minis. Um, I've been sort of making up my own things for, to, to use minis in the game. Um, so I'm looking, I'm really looking forward to, to running that and, um, introducing people to the game and getting a chance to sit down and play it. Actually, um, tonight in about an hour, I'm going to be sitting down and, uh, and playing a game of the Marvel RPG to, to really see how the mechanics work and answer any of my questions that I have before I'm going to be running it. So, um, this episode should be dropping hopefully within the next week or so. I'm not working this week, so I'm hoping to get this edited and out the door pretty quickly. Yeah. I'm going to be coming back to Spokane in June and uh, I'm really hoping to be able to to run a game for you guys. Maybe you guys, maybe you and mom can be in my my role playing game group. <laughs> it would be good to have you have you back in town. Yeah. Well, I think that about wraps it up. That's all we have for this month. Have a good night. Bye.